I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group one of the best digital asset event and media production companies that I know of. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. You won't be disappointed. This is David, and this is your new episode of Baselayer. I have the CEO and co-founder of Fireblocks, Michael Shalov, with me today. Michael, how are you? I'm good. Thanks, David, for having me. It's great to have you on. Um... Fireblocks is something that I have been hearing more and more about. And so in this world where we're trying to bring institutional investors to digital assets, the idea of custody and the idea of wallets is somewhat cumbersome. It has been for the last few years. It is getting better. And so we're going to talk about some of those aspects. So, Michael, before we go into what Fireblocks is, what I'd like to do is just give people a background on our guest. And you have a great background, especially at Checkpoint Software Technologies. So if you can, just give us a little bit of background. And what I like to focus in on is not necessarily the when Bitcoin moment, and that is just kind of a meme, but when did you really decide to deploy your personal assets into digital assets and create Fireblocks? Um, so maybe I'll give a bit uh, of my my personal background, uh, sort of explain how uh, I ended up in, uh, in the space. <clears throat> so... Actually, unlike I think many other people in, in the institutional uh, cryptocurrency space, uh, my background is actually in cybersecurity. So I started uh, um, in the cybersecurity space about 20 years ago in the in the Israeli Cyber Command, and then sort of fast forward in 2011, uh, started my previous company that was focused on mobile security for enterprise customers. And um, in 2015, we got acquired by a company called Checkpoint that uh, for uh, the guys on the podcast that familiar with Checkpoint, they're uh, the biggest cybersecurity vendor, about a $20 billion company. They, they actually invented the firewall in the early 90s. So after the acquisition, I was basically heading their um, cloud, sec- cloud and mobile security portfolio. And uh, what happened in 2017 was uh, that actually we were involved into investigating a, a breach that happened in South Korea where four exchanges got hacked over there. Um, four Bitcoin exchanges were hacked over there. And uh, that was sort of like, you know, the, the moment where I realized that there is something really interesting uh, going on in that space because of the vast amount of assets that were stolen and the um, hacking group that was behind the hack and essentially like the, the way that they were sort of uh, working their way through the financial system overall. <laughs> and and sort of fast forward, I guess, almost a year later, that was the point that we, me and my my co-founders uh, uh, jumped boats and, and basically started Fireblocks and, and focused on uh, creating a, an infrastructure for the space. 
So it was a lot about security and your background, obviously it was in the security space. So I want to discuss a catalyst. And so when kind of reviewing and researching about Fireblocks, there is an interesting point that you guys make in 2017, the Lazarus group um, hijacked or stole $200 million worth of digital assets when it might have been Bitcoin. Many institutional investors have really been over the last few years, and I've been in this space as kind of a conduit between institutional investors and digital assets, have been very concerned about this, about this idea of hacks, um, about the three or four million Bitcoin that are basically gone. And a lot of that is either vis-a-vis hacks or vis-a-vis loss of private keys. But there's been an issue there. And so explain the three critical attack vectors that you know of and how have they been exploited uh, kind of in your build-out of Fireblocks? What are those three attack vectors? Yeah, so um, when we sort of look at the gaps that um, the digital asset or the blockchain technology brings, um, okay, there are a lot of advantages, by the way, from a cybersecurity standpoint, right? So um, one of the ways to actually look at, at, at blockchain in general and uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum are uh, prime examples for that is that it sort of flips this cybersecurity model on its uh, head, right? If um, in the traditional space, just like, you know, generally speaking, IT, what happens is that you have usually those centralized databases. So, you know, let's take uh, Equifax as an example, because they are fairly famous uh, use case. Uh, You have like a central database that holds all the information about uh, the credit scores of uh, half of the population of the United States. And then the hackers are able to exploit that database, leak all that information, and that's it, right? You basically, it's, it's, uh, it's game over. All that information about half of the population of the United States is at, at the hands of the hackers, right? Uh, with, with blockchain, uh, that centralized uh, point of failure or, or point of compromise is actually being removed, right? You have um, a highly distributed uh, database system that is sort of protected against the uh, uh, all kind of fraud-related attacks like uh, double spend, uh, the ability to change records. It's uh, it's encrypted. In some chains, you actually have a fairly strong anonymization layer, and so on. Right. So that's great. And to be honest, probably like you know, one of the ways that we can look at at, at uh, Bitcoin and and blockchain overall is that Bitcoin is the biggest honeypot out there. Right. They like. Um, I'm not sure what's the what's the what's the current uh, market cap, but let's say somewhere around 180 million, uh, 180 billion dollars, essentially um, sitting fully connected to the internet, and still, like you know, over the last 12 years, no one was actually able to to export the blockchain itself. Now, what really happens is that the hackers move to the edges, right? So they're basically going after the the users that connect to that system. And then they go, and then they have actually multiple ways of exploiting those users. The, the first and probably most well-known vector is essentially stealing their, pri- their private key, right? So if your private key, which is essentially your, your long password that allows you to transfer the assets from your account, uh, is, is being compromised by hackers, they can now withdraw it to their own wallets. And because of the non-recursive uh, nature of, uh, there is no recourse, right? There is no way for you to, um, revert that transaction, the, the assets are gone. So that's sort of like the most obvious and the most well-known uh, attack vector. Now, the second vector uh, that uh, 
for whatever reason, most people are actually not fully aware of is around the deposit addresses, right? So when you are transferring assets from one party to another, the second party need to basically somehow send the deposit address, which is basically the public key, um, to the first party. And then the first party will actually use that in order to transfer assets into that address. The, the problem is that because it's an open system, um, it's fairly it's fairly easy to spoof that address, right? So if you need to transfer transfer me a Bitcoin, someone can actually sit in between us and do what we call a man-in-the-middle attack. So basically to spoof our communication, and instead of sending me sending you my address, which is let's say one two three, it would send you four five six, uh, which is his address, and then you would just transfer the assets to, to to them, right? So so the transaction itself is being compromised and diverted to the to the hackers. Um, that's sort of like you know issue number two, and issue number three is somewhat a connected issue of authentication authorization where. Um, at the end of the day, we're using uh, all kind of um, intermediary layers. For example, we, we would use accounts on exchanges, and we have a username and password for, for our account to that exchange. And you know, when we pre-funding our trade on that exchange, uh, if someone actually compromised our username and password to that exchange, they can log in into that exchange and essentially withdraw the assets to, to their hands, change the whitelisting, and so on. So... That's sort of like you know the third issue that we were seeing uh, being exploited quite widely by the hackers. Um, there are other issues you know that are a bit um, slightly like you know remote to those three issues. For example, you know smart contracts. Occasionally, like you know you see issues or errors in smart contracts, but those are more um, sort of static issues that are not related to the user himself. Right. And so for the listeners out there right now who are trying to get a grasp of this world, if you had the ability just to compress and synthesize everything that you do into one minute in a very non-technocratic way, something that someone with not much, say, sophistication about digital assets, about chains, about encryption, how would you describe what Fireblocks is trying to do? So... What we do is we solve two main issues um, for the institutional uh, ecosystem. One um, is the ability to store assets securely, but with real-time accessibility, right? That um, um, you know you don't have like you know forty-eight hours or twenty-four hours or like very complicated procedures that uh, uh, you need to apply in order to to withdraw those assets. So that's uh, issue number one that we solve, and we solve it in a way that is both fast and secure. Uh, and the second issue, and that's the, issue, and that's the aspect that we are most famous for uh, in terms of what we are providing, is a highly secure transfer network where they can connect to other counterparties that they're doing business with, and they're able to sell those transactions in a secure, compliant, uh, way. Um, so you can think about it a bit like, I guess, that we're building something that's similar to Swift, but for uh, the natively digital space. Got it. And so let's delve into this a little bit more. So you developed a groundbreaking solution that combines the newest breakthroughs in cryptographic and chip level isolation technology to ensure all digital assets are not only held 
but also transferred securely. And so there's a secure hot vault, a secure transfer environment, and a workflow authorization engine. And so, again, I want to try to make this a little bit easier for people to digest. Obviously, there's a lot of technology here. But for those that are trying to learn the difference between cold storage and hot storage or cold storage and hot wallets, things of that nature, describe the, again, the pain point. So with hot wallets, just so people can understand, things are typically online. That makes it a little bit easier to attack, if you will, or for hackers to get access to it. And then cold storage, as you alluded to, talk about that specifically, because I think people are still not understanding that with cold storage, the the traditional two, three year ago kind of technology of cold storage, you would not be able to access your digital assets for twelve for 24 to 48 hours typically. So if you could just talk a little bit more about the technology and the solutions that you kind of uh, brought to the market. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So maybe I guess I'll start from a high level and that basically just a, a general ask, the general thing about security, right? In most cases, um, we, we know that security comes at the expense of convenience and convenience comes at the expense of security, right? Uh, I think we all aware of it from the physical space, right? So you want to be secure, you need to put like, you know, 10 locks on your door, right? Uh, and then you probably fairly protected from intruders, right? But it would take you like, uh, you know, 20 minutes to open the door when uh, guests arrive, right? That's, I guess, like the most the most simple way to uh, show the country, the inherent contradiction over there. And we also know it from the digital space that, you know, if we put 10 different antivirus on our on our laptop, it will become slow and unusable, right? So to bridge those two, to bridge those, the, those two things is, is actually quite difficult. And, you know, the, the first attempt was actually done through cold storage. Um, the idea about cold storage is that we completely disconnect the, the environment that stores the private key from the internet. The advantage is fairly clear, right? There is no way for the hackers to uh, basically get some sort of connection and try to probe uh, that environment and eventually extract the private key. The disadvantage is that, you know, this environment is not connected to the internet, right? So you now need some kind of fairly cumbersome manual process that uh, um, the, the data to sign the transaction and the signed transaction will basically move back and forth uh, between uh, um, a, a disconnected environment and online environment, right? Because basically the blockchain is connected to the internet. So. Um, the problem with it is that it just takes time and also you want to have all kinds of procedures that mitigate internal fraud by, by the custodian or by in that uh, air-gapped environment. And therefore, um, usually the SLAs that you would see over there in terms of from the time that you want to do a transaction to the time that the transaction actually appears on chain can be somewhere from you know 30 minutes to 48 hours, right? Depends on the, the, internal, the internal and human procedures that they have. The, the other side of it is basically say, okay, we want to connect, um, we want to connect it to the to the internet, and then every time that you want to do a transaction, we immediately sign that transaction and we send that to we send the transaction on the internet, which means that we can do it in a split of a second. The disadvantage is clearly that how do we guarantee that it's you, right? That is basically asking to do the transaction. How we guarantee that? Um, 
it's not the hackers that are basically impersonating you, or uh, how do we guarantee that the hackers are unable to essentially break the 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 the, the machine that holds the, the the private key and steal the private key, right? So th- those are inherently the two things that um, people should understand when they sort of evaluating just the traditional model of cold storage and hot storage. Now, I think what happened in the last uh, two years since Fireblocks and some, you know, actually a very small set of companies uh, were able to do is like we were able to to get to, to create a breakthrough that we actually bring the convenience and security together and we are able to create a secure environment that also allows us to um, have this uh, sub, like a second level signature. Got it. Um, so I really want to talk about this too. So you've seen some tremendous growth within the digital asset landscape. A lot of people are starting to use Fireblocks across the board on the asset management and the trading side, correct? Yeah, we, you know, within a, uh, within a year, we actually now have about 70 customers. 70, that's that's a fairly impressive growth. And so I want to discuss this client quote, and I thought it was really interesting. Since implementing Fireblocks, we've had some of the best months in terms of increasing trade volume. And this is from B2C2. So if you could, what do you think attributes that Fireblocks has led to that? So it basically goes back to um, to the previous topic that we've discussed. Uh, what we've realized is that um, while effectively we are solving a security problem, not only does that security problem actually impacts your... The, the most obvious thing is that it impacts the bottom line, right? Basically, their ROI and the number of people, if you don't have Fireblocks, you need more people to do your day-to-day operations. But what we actually discovered is that no matter how many operation people you have to solve uh, that problem without Fireblocks, at the end of the day, there would still be an, an impact on the top line in which you actually are unable to do... Uh, to, to, to release transaction at, at, at the speed that you need. So let me just sort of uh, explain it from a financial standpoint. Um, in most cases, at least like in the, in the trading, um, around both trading and also payments, um, there is a time to credit, right? So there is a, there are, most people operate either on a credit limit or they requiring a pre-fund for the trade. Now, let's assume that you extend that credit to, to a counterparty to trade on and, um, and that counterparty basically hits his credit limit, right? That means that he cannot actually trade with you anymore. Now, let's assume that you're actually like selling that credit, like let's say three times a day, right? If your counterparties are hitting the credit limit, let's say two, you know, two hours before um, before the the settlement time occurs, it means that you basically have six hours every day that those parties or counterparties cannot. Uh, trade with you, right? So this is basically a lost revenue, and most likely that they can go, they will go to other parties and they will trade with them. 
if you're able to get, get those settlement times close to real time and essentially clear, uh, uh, clear and sell um, in near real time or at least every couple of minutes, then basically at no point in time, um, guys will, will hit the credit limit or if they're getting to their credit limit, they can, they can essentially just clear it immediately and continue trading. And this is an inherent uh, problem that we solve from a financial standpoint for almost every financial uh, institution and financial customer that we are working with, right? From OTCs to exchanges to lending providers to proprietary, proprietary trading desks, they all have uh, this kind of problem in this way or form that we are able to help them. And then um, they're just having like, you know, better return on capital, they're more competitive and they can do more business with more people. It's interesting that this is a, from learning about it, it's a, it's a part of the system that did not exist two years ago, three years ago in digital assets and that it was obviously very needed. You know, there's a lot of infrastructure that was needed in the space to really help it grow. And so I would love to hear kind of what the future is for the next 6, 12, 18 months. What, what are some of the you know, kind of items on the roadmap that you guys are bringing to the market? So um, we're working on, on a couple of actually really interesting initiatives uh, internally uh, with partners. Uh, the first thing that we are sort of aggressively pursuing is to connect more and more parties uh, into, in, into the Fireblocks network, uh, uh, including more custodians, including more uh, liquidity providers, more exchanges, and so on. So basically, the way that we look at it is that anyone that's on board with Fireblocks, he, on, on, on day one, he should be in a position to execute uh, trades or execute settlements with more counterparties that he could even imagine, right? Uh, the second thing that we're working on is sort of creating uh, more efficiencies in the cell, in, in the system. So both in terms of uh, the ability to sell, to do settlements uh, using uh, functions like uh, delivery via payment or payments via payment that uh, uh, will be available through through our infrastructure. We actually released uh, on that. We actually released integration with both Signatures Bank and 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 uh, other banks that uh, uh, providing fiat that uh, you can actually do those uh, those kind of settlements. And um, on top of it, we we are working on uh, mechanisms that uh, with partners that are providing uh, uh, certain uh, cross margining capabilities in a really smart and decentralized way. Um, that brings us also to our support uh, around the DeFi applications. So some some of the things that we've done recently is, uh, in, for example, is integration with Compound. That uh, in the last couple of uh, uh, months we see huge uh, uptake in in that functionality with, uh, within our customer base. Um, so those are, I would say, you know, the main things that uh, we're just working on, basically making the ecosystem more connected. Uh, and more streamlined uh, for for our users and their partners. Everyone seems to be working with Compound these days. I'm going to have to get Lesnar on the show and talk about why, but we'll get there one of these days. Um, 
would love to hear from you. We'd like to learn a little bit about our guests more on a personal level, not just on what they're building. Um, two things that we'd like to talk about are, one, any books that you've read recently or any articles or anything of that nature that you've read recently that really resonated with you, something that you had to go tell your friends or your family about, and then any music that you like. Oh, uh, that's, a, that's a good question. So, uh, you know, in terms of books, uh, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm, I'm mostly reading uh, startup startup books recently. Uh, so, uh, and uh, I guess uh, professional books about this, the, the topics that we, uh, we 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 are working on. So, one of the books that I always recommend to to, to people it's it's actually a book that I probably read about ten years ago, but uh, every few months I I, I find myself uh, reading it again. It's called uh, Four Steps to to Epiphany. Um, it was written by uh, by Steve Blank um, about I don't know maybe like fifteen years ago or almost twenty years ago, and sort of it's it's like a a, a handbook uh, on how to successfully build a startup and how to go to market with startup and how to create valuable products. Uh, that's always a book that I recommend uh, reading. Um, Another interesting book that I actually read recently uh, is about the in, the the history of uh, Visa, uh, the the payment provider. It's actually quite a fascinating book to to read how they uh, they build the the credit card industry. And I think that for uh, for for overall the the blockchain and and crypto ecosystem, it can be interesting to read that book just to get a perspective on uh, how long and how much it takes to really change the financial system. And then any music that you like? Yeah, so I mostly listen I'm, I'm mostly listening to, to electronic music. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, you know, I think at at, uh, <laughs> at 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 this day and age you just like open Spotify and you select uh, your uh, favorite artist uh, like you know the right, radio right. so uh, you know whether it's uh, Bonobo or DJ Shadow or uh, some of those. Uh... DJ Shadow, very nice. Yeah, I am a, uh, my, back in the day, I was a DJ also. And so electronic music was definitely a big part of mine. So uh, always love hearing that. That's a great surprise. We'll talk more about that offline. Um, where can people find more about Fireblocks and can they start using it? How can they uh, get involved with it? Yeah, sure. So uh, uh, you, you can find more about us at www.fireblocks.com. Um, and uh, there is a contact form there that uh, um, folks can fill, and uh, we can, you know, then we'll uh, reach out to them, and we will set up uh, the process to get them onboarded. It's a it's a fairly uh, streamlined onboarding process uh, because um, the platform is, itself is uh, is not cons- non non-custo- considered to be non custodial, so the, the the number of the, the requirements to, to onboard with Fireblocks are uh, uh, more streamlined. Uh, compared to to other solutions, and uh, yeah, I mean, usually it takes uh, somewhere between twenty four to forty eight hours to to actually start using the platform. Excellent. This was Michael Shalov, the CEO and co-founder of Fireblocks. Great conversation about more about the security of digital assets, which is incredibly important these days, and the maturation of that space. Michael, thank you for coming on. Hopefully we can catch up and see how all those roadmap items you talked about are progressing, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, Michael. Sounds good. Thank you so much, David.
Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets.